welcome to episode 48 of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Gosselin, editor of the Society's members magazine, Unfiltered. The name Dr Bill Lumsden doesn't need much of an introduction in the whiskey world. The head of distilling and whiskey creation at Glenmorangie and Ardbeg has been a constant force of innovation and flavour development over the past 30 years or so. Members of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society were fortunate to attend a tasting conducted by Dr Bull at the vaults in October to taste some fantastic whiskies from Glenmorangie, Ardbeg and of course from the Society, but also to hear his thoughts on everything in the whiskey world from additional maturation to non-age statements, the use of sherry casks and a whole lot more in between. The Society's Spirits Educator, Dr Andy Forrester, caught up with Bill for a quick chat before the pair of them hosted the tasting together in our members' room. I'll leave it up to Andy from here on. I wanted to ask you just a few things about flavour sure. and, and innovation yeah. and experimentation, I guess, uh, and across a number of different areas um, in terms of what makes, what makes whiskey what it is. Starting with cask, I guess. Yeah. And, I mean, you, you know, obviously you, you pioneered uh, the use of different casks for maturation, what was that, 80s? Um, yeah, the, the, the company kicked it off in the late 80s. Yeah. And that, that whole programme fell into obeyance. Yeah. Um, because the board at that time didn't really have the, the... Their heart wasn't in it. Yeah. And then when I came along as distillery manager, as a scientist, I mm. got hold of it and resurrected it all and tried to broaden it and expand it. Yeah. So um, I joined Glenmore at the end of 1994, Andy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, it would be remiss of me not to acknowledge David Stewart, of course, yeah, having worked yeah. with him for a while. But you and you and David, you know, were the first mm. people to, to, to play around with additional cast mm. maturation, and you obviously went, you know, took it to, to a whole new level. I guess the question is, do you think there's any opportunity left in cask for in the cask in wood for flavour innovation, or have we done it? And I guess I'm thinking, you know, is it something? Is it is it around heat treatment and manufacture of the cask, or is it still in what the cask have been seasoned with? Anyway, just your thoughts, Bill. Yeah, I, I, I think there definitely is still scope mm. for innovation, but mm. we are unlikely to see anything as radically different as we have seen over the last 20 years. Okay, yeah. Because, you know, um, there are still one or two oak species out there that Mm -hmm. haven't been used. Mm -hmm. And I say that very advisedly because, of course, you know, I'm looking at everything. Mm -hmm. Um, There's obviously one or two types of wine and things like that that probably haven't been explored. But I, I think, you know, the big step changes in that area have probably occurred now and we won't see another step change like that unless, for example, the the Scotch whisky regs are changed to allow wood other than oak, yeah. which would not necessarily be a good thing because mm-hmm. as someone who's experimented with a number of different species, mm-hmm. the results are bizarre, to put it mildly. So I think most of the innovation that we are likely to see over the next 10 to 20 years are going to come more from primary production. Yeah, which leads... I mean, that, that, that was going to be the next question, really, given that we've, we've done the cast to death, yeah. which, not quite, but you yeah. sort of say there's, well, you know, there's no step change maybe for a while. Yeah, where is it? Is it in raw materials? Is it in primary process itself? What, where do you think the big uh, opportunities uh, are? Uh, I think that uh, th- there will be 
Lots of innovation in terms of raw materials. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, as you know, Andy, for single malt scotch, Mm -hmm. it has to be 100% barley. Mm -hmm. For um, single, for grain scotch or blended scotch, there are only five cereal types we're allowed to use by law, which are barley, wheat, Mm -hmm. corn, Mm -hmm. rye and oats. Mm -hmm. So all of these other things like sorghum and triticale and Mm. rice, you're not allowed to make Scotch whiskey out of that. So that's out with the definition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, because I, I thought any cereal grain was nope. So was okay. So did I until I started building the lighthouse and asked some questions of my friends at the SWA. Interesting. So, but because, so, sorry. No, so you know, there's nothing to say that you can't make a spirit in Scotland out of other cereal grains, but you cannot label it as Scotch whiskey. Interesting, but but you know, notwithstanding raw materials, you know, yeast fermentation. There's so much we can do there. Distillation profiles. You know, we've barely scraped the surface of what's possible with that. Hmm. I was, I, funnily enough, I wanted to ask you about grain whiskey because mm-hmm. I, I I believe it's a big opportunity. I just don't think anybody yet has really captured the consumer imagination with it. I agree. Um, uh, I mean, do you, do, you, do you think you've got any ideas what, what, what we can do within grain whiskey? I mean, I, it hasn't escaped my notice you have a um, hammer mill and mash conversion vessel, <clears throat> so I suspect you're playing with other cereals. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's doesn't take a genius to work out that within the lighthouse and it's well documented I have the capability to process other cereals mm. I also have the capability to process other stuff uh, welly boots welly boots sheep agave <laughs> pineapples who knows yeah you know, I'm still getting to grips with how the plant works and how to get the best out of it from a mm-hmm. Scotch whisky perspective but yes it has been designed to allow me to do grain and malt whiskey there yeah okay but you know it's it's interesting that you say and again i totally agree andy that grain hasn't hugely captured the imagination yet and i need to be careful what i say here but you know our our friends had a wonderful campaign a few years ago featuring featuring legendary footballers and such like um I just felt the product itself might have been a bit more engaging, if I can put yeah. it that way. I mean, I, I, mean I, was, I, was, I was going to say, for me, I, I'm not sure anybody's got, nobody's, nobody's got the proposition right yet. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we know we're talking about the blue perfume bottle, um, and, you know, that I'm not sure that's worked out well. Uh, our friends at Willie Grant, of course, took a very much targeting the uh, the more of the whiskey connoisseur mm-hmm. with uh, Gerben Patton still. Yeah. Interestingly, neither seems to have quite fully mm-hmm. captured. So I just wonder what what it is that we need to do as an industry to because and, and you know and and because grain whiskey, there's so much opportunity in it in terms of what you you and I like. There, there's so much opportunity because it's a, a more neutral spirit mm-hmm. than malt spirit. Therefore, you can flex the flavour profile more mm-hmm. by doing different things there. And, you know, right off the top of my head, I could imagine making a grain whiskey with a more curious um mash bill mm-hmm. and again I, I'm thinking of what I did with the chocolate malt for Signet mm-hmm. you could do something there of course uh, maturation lens H- huge opportunity for grain whiskey and you know most of the real top 
sherry casks, unusual wine casks and such like have been pretty much reserved for use with malt spirit. Mm. But why not with grain spirit? Yeah, no, well, I, I entirely agree. I'm, in fact, one of the most memorable society whiskies I've drunk recently was actually a an old grain whiskey from a closed distillery that makes it interesting of course yeah. but it was actually from a from a lovely old cherry cask and uh yeah you would maybe think that wouldn't work but it did oh yeah i mean it, it's i mean I, i've had the pleasure of having some real cracking grain whiskies particularly from the north british mm. who back in the days when our company did blends uh, nb was always my favorite grain mm -hmm. uh, particularly particularly distilled with maize rather than wheat yeah but you know, I've had some absolute crackers, you know, like 15, 20 year olds from a, a first filled bourbon barrel, an absolute joy to drink. Yeah. I th so <clears throat> I, mean, I think the, you know, the, the opportunity probably does lie in that mash bill mm. thing. And you can see how interesting that is yeah. in the American whiskey category. They all talk about mash bill, don't they? And it's something we don't talk much about in Scotch whiskey. Yeah. So. I, I think part of the reason for that is that, you know, the, 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 the mash tun in a typical Scotch malt whiskey distillery, once you get it balanced and running well, mm. then you tend not to want to change it. And you know, you'll tweak it if you change malted barley supplier mm. or barley variety. You sometimes have to alter the mill. But, you know, it, there's so much complex biochemistry goes on there that, you know, if you're not careful, it can go horribly mm. wrong. So I think for that reason, we leave well alone. Yeah. Okay, but you've got the kit at the lighthouse too. You, you know, of course, Andy, that I don't leave things well alone, but you know, it causes a lot of angst for our distillery managers when I ask to do some of these trials. Mm -hmm. And almost always we will lose yield, but that's fine. Yeah. If we lose yield and gain flavour, then that's that's okay by me. Yeah, can I... Can I talk to you about peaty whiskey mm -hmm. um, we, I guess we've talked um, a little mm. bit about Glenmorangie in, in mm -hmm. that um, what was the premise of this so we know there's a threat mm -hmm. to the supply of our peat grass mm -hmm. for, uh, for the industry um, I guess what I'm, I'm wondering is do, do you think we understand peaty character fully Absolutely not. We measure these six marker, six marker phenols, yeah. and we think that, that that's what it's all about, PPM. It's not just that. Mm. And do you think if we can understand it better, that opens up a lot of opportunity in terms of what we can do? So It is a very complex and very inexact science. And, you know, there is much more than, you know, uh, phenol itself, you know, exactly. six carbon ring to hydroxyl, yeah. cresol, endophenol, all, all these different things in there. And, you know, nobody, I believe, has done an awful lot of work to say how much it varies from peat moss to peat moss, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's from Aberdeenshire or Isla or Ireland. Yeah. But um, also how that interacts with your own particular distillation style and things like that. So I think it's not very well understood. The other side of the coin, of course, is that I, e even as a scientist who demands to know the answer to everything, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, I keep thinking of the lady in Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull at the end who looks into the alien's eyes and says, I want you to tell me everything. And then, of course, she's killed by the alien. So you need to be careful what you wish for. Yeah. And I think that sort of magical 
not fully understood alchemy is mm. part and parcel of the allure of Scotch whisky. And I don't think we'll ever understand uh, everything there is to know. But yeah, um, peatiness is something that gets talked a lot about, but not really with a very high level of authority. Yeah, uh, I would agree. Um, so, I mean, I guess, you know, the, there is this idea that we may have to use less peat or mm -hmm. maybe we want, there'll be a point when we can't even, we won't be able to use peat at all. I guess I'm thinking about alternatives <coughs> and what do we do um, as an alternative? And I guess I'm kind of, this is a leading question about a, a whiskey that you produced quite recently. Okay, so um, in terms of us not being able to use it. I think we're a long way off from that, mm -hmm. Andy. And, you know, the reality is that the quantity of peat that is used to kill the malted barley for the Scotch whiskey industry is a fraction of the overall peat. It's less than 10% that's yeah. harvested because it goes into compost and things yeah, like that. Yeah, I think that. I read 1% in yeah. Ingvar Runn's book today. It, it, it might even yeah. be that. Yeah, I, I it's know it's small. certainly much less than yeah. 10. Um, but, you know, in common with everything else we do in our industry, mm. we are looking at the long-term sustainability. Yeah. And it still is my view that the regeneration of peat mosses is way above our rate of extraction in the industry. Yeah. But, you know, it, we, we are carefully looking at it. We're looking at reinstating peat mosses. And yet we need to work in conjunction with the other users of peat, i.e. the gardening industry primarily. But I think we'll get there. And I'm, I'm not yet looking for alternatives. Now, it was a very nice segue you gave there into... <laughs> Some research I was doing with Ian Russell, our former company yeah. archivist. Now, Ian has retired, but he, I still um, employ his services to do work because mm -hmm. he's such a font of knowledge and he knows where to look for these things. And I always believed that it wouldn't just have been Pete that was used. It would have been other things. Of course. And, you know, they're primarily used to generate heat. Mm. That's the primary reason for doing it. Mm -hmm. And I guess the side effect of that, you know, a pretty popping side effect in terms of peat, obviously, is that it gives distinctive characteristics to it. So the experiments which you speak of, which have led to a Glenmorangia <laughs> tale of the forest. Tale of the forest. Genuinely, my first interest was just to try and recreate something that I believe would have been done mm. historically where there would have been all sorts of local materials and, you know, we've yeah. got evidence of bog myrtle mm -hmm. and birch bark and mm -hmm. rowan berries mm -hmm. and gorse and all sorts. And these things would have been burnt to give the heat to dry the barley to make it safe for storage. Yep. So I, I, I wasn't primarily looking to <whistles> the flavour. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously it has had... There's a slight difference in there. And the only way I could burn all of these things was in a peat fire. Mm -hmm. So our friends at Simpsons and Berwick-upon-Tweed uh, did a week's worth of malted barley production for us mm -hmm. in their peat kiln. But it wasn't just the peat, it was the other materials in there. And I, in case you're sensing I'm being a little bit cagey here... Um, 
I'm also thinking of our friends at the Scotch Whiskey Association. Which is where I was going to come, and which we, 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 we referenced earlier. So, yeah, um, I'm guessing this has caused a little bit of consternation um, at SWA. I mean, we had the meeting with the SWA and they accepted that, yes, of course, these, these materials almost certainly would have been used and, and many more that we haven't yet discovered. Um, but their perspective was um, if you're setting out to do something that deliberately adds flavour, then they're uncomfortable with that. And that, that's perfectly reasonable. And, you know, if, if you taste Glenmorangie, a tale of the forest, mm. do you know what it tastes like? No, I need to taste it. It tastes like a Glenmorangie whiskey. <laughs> and that's a good starter for 10. So that, that was why we said, look, we've just made another Glenmorangie. Now, if you compare that to Glenmorangie original, guess what? It's mm. going to be a bit different. Yeah. And, and that, I guess, sort of touches on the final thing I want to discuss. My... my reading is that there's nothing actually in the definite well the the the, the, the definition is is about the process mm -hmm. and as i see it there's nothing in that part of it that precludes you from doing what you've done <laughs> Do you agree? would that be fair absolutely the the, the unfortunate catch-all at the end which is has the taste aroma and color generally found in scotch whiskies where i wondered if it would be challenging so my question was going to be <coughs> excuse me is it now that we need to look at that um, in the definition to allow us to be more innovative. Uh, but you make the point that it tastes like a Glenmorangie. So yeah. anyway, your thoughts it's, on the, the whole, um, that whole part of the definition it, that... It, it's the, it, if you allow too many things to be changed, it's potentially the thin end of the wedge. And before you know it, you've got all sorts of nonsense going on mm -hmm. and different flavours and things which are not necessarily going to enhance the product. Mm. So with my hand and my heart, from where I'm sitting, I made a slightly different Glenmorangie with a nice little story attached to mm -hmm. it. And I, I, I can see no issue with that. Okay. But, you know, the, the, the Scotch Whiskey Association, quite correctly, are uneasy if anything that a member company does would potentially lead to other things being done which are not necessarily to the benefit of the product, and I'm I'm being very careful with my wording. Yeah, here, Andy. no, and, and and you know, I mean, I know we we talk about. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I know I know we you know we often complain that it yeah. stifles innovation, but you know, I always remind people never forget those words. Scotch whiskey yeah. are so valuable globally, yeah. and the SWA do a brilliant job. Of course, in the, yeah. the, the value I, I, of those. And you know, words. if they weren't there, goodness knows where we would be. There would be all sorts of fireball nonsense and things like that to, to name a brand like that on that note we should probably go and taste some whiskey with yeah. some of our members okay um, so we should probably wrap up and go through to the members room and yeah. uh, open some uh, some bottles of Glenmorangie right. and Ardbeg good evening all how are we are we, are we in good spirit? Oh, yes. Good. Well, we, we certainly will be. Um, so I just wanted to just take a couple of minutes, um, I guess, really to, 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 to introduce Dr. Bill. I, I'm Dr. Andy. Um, I, my, my role here at the Society is uh, education. So I spend a lot of my time um, teaching these guys and our ambassadors who travel around the UK and further around the world uh, um, uh, about whiskey so they can share their experience and knowledge with, with our members. Um, so that's me. I've known Bill for, what, getting scarily, what, 20 years nearly? Uh, just about now? that, yeah. Um, Bill and I share um, 
set of very similar interests. We're both scientists, as you can guess. Um, you're a plant scientist as well, aren't you? I, I'm a biochemist. Biochemist, yeah, yeah. okay. So we, we both have a real interest in, in flavour. Where does flavour come from in the whisky production process? And also innovation. How can we create novel flavour and different character in Scotch whisky? Um, Bill's, um, Bill's had, a, I guess, a, what, a sort of long relationship with the society. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a period of, I think it was about nine years, uh, when, as you may know, um, Glen Morangy or LVMH owned the Scotch Malt Whisky Society. And during that period, the society was really lucky to have Dr. Bill's um, experience. And I think you really laid the groundwork for what is now our additional cast maturation program. Um, so we've benefited a huge amount from your experience, and we still have a, a really good ongoing relationship uh, and call upon you f- frequently. Um, so it's good to hear, have you here anyway, Bill. Um, I'm probably going to ask you a few questions sure. um, throughout yeah. the evening. Please, um, I hope you would all, uh, you know, please ask questions yourselves. Um, got you know, a, a real expert here. So should we kick off with the first whiskey, Bill? Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yep. Okay, thank, thanks very much, Andy. Well, good. good evening, ladies and gents. Um, I, I usually start off a presentation like this by saying, can you all hear me Okay. As my wife often says, speak up, Billy, they can't hear you in Glasgow. So I'm sure you can hear me all right. And I also always say, can you understand me okay? And where this comes from is that I do a bit of travel for the Glenmorangie Company internationally. So I'm used to being translated into Mandarin or Cantonese or Japanese or whatever. And I actually imagine that my Scottish accent has just about vanished, but my, my French colleagues in Moat Hennessy assure me that is not the case. So, as Andy says, we go back a long way, because even before the Glenmorangie Company was bought by LVMH, which is Moat Hennessy Louis Vuitton, the French luxury goods company, they bought the Glenmorangie Company in 2005, but we actually had... <clears throat> bought the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society just before that. So as Andy says, I've got a a little bit of history with the society and obviously a very big place in my heart for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. And Andy, if I'm remembered for nothing else, I hope you remember me for persuading my fellow directors at Glenmorangie that we need to keep supplying the society with lovely Ardbeg and Glenmorangie casks. Yes. And it, it was actually quite an embarrassment for me that when we first bought the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, Glenmorangie had never been bottled. Ardbeg had from its previous owner. So Ardbeg mm. is, is number 33, as I'm sure you all know. And Glenmorangie is one distillery 125. And, you know, as much as I can... Uh, before, as long as I don't get fired by the Glenmorangie Company, I'll, I'll try and keep the supply lines flowing. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, was inter- just, just an interesting on that point about it wasn't until then we'd bottled Glenmorangie. So Distillery 125, we're at about 150 something now. Mm-hmm. Um, it was well, it was about at the time I worked behind the bar, Bill. Yeah. Um, quite a long time ago, 2007, I think, yeah. we first bottled Glenmorangie. Yeah. Um, which, uh, yeah, I mean, that's maybe surprising in, 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 in many ways. I mean, it's, the, the other thing that I would build on that is that um, I also have a big place in my heart for the merchant bottlers like Gordon and MacPhail and Signatory and such like, and there's no question that these companies 
kept the name of many distilleries alive in the days when the actual owners were only using the stock for blending. And, you mm. know, Ardbeg is a very good example mm. of this that I think Gordon and McPhail need a big round of applause because they kept the name of Ardbeg alive. Mm. And certainly the very first Ardbeg I ever tasted was an utterly sublime 1978 refill bourbon cask from, from Gordon and McPhail. And I've kind of lost the gist of what I was saying here, but um, I, I think... I think you were saying the society was great. Yeah, um, I, I was saying the society was absolutely fabulous. But, you, you know, it's... I, I realise now what I was talking about here, um, that Glenmorangie has not been available in merchants' bottlings for at least 50 years. And that's because the Glenmorangie company mopped up every drop of stock to use for the company's own single malt bottlings. Mm. So you, you, you absolutely won't find Glenmorangie out there by signatory or, or, or by anyone um, because it just hasn't been done. What you might find is Westport, and Westport mm. is teaspooned Glenmorangie. Mm -hmm. So it's a vat of the new make spirit, 99% Glenmorangie new make, and we added to that one single cask of new make Glenmurray, therefore making it technically a vatted malt. But to all intents and purposes, it is actually Glenmorangie whiskey. And the bad boys at the Dornoch distillery, oh, yeah. Phil and Simon, yeah, yeah. I thought they, I think they, they did a hilarious bottling of Westport with a big giraffe on it, which of course is the Glenmorangie brand mascot mm -hmm. and a homage to the tall stills at Glenmorangie. But as I say, Ardbeg was kept alive by the merchant mm -hmm. bottlings and without a word of a lie, when we bought the distillery at the end of 1996, it was almost impossible to find Ardbeg bottled as a single malt. Allied Demek, the former owners, who were very kind to Glenmorangie, even although we didn't put in the highest bid for the Ardbeg distillery, they decided to sell to us because they felt we would treat it with a degree of sympathy and keep the brand alive. But it's quite interesting when you see the price that distilleries are being sold for these days. And in 1996, we paid £7.7 .7 million for the Ardbeg distillery, which admittedly was an, a, a wreck. Um, the distillery, the brand name, and all of the maturing stock that came with it. Now, LVMH have absolutely no intention of selling Glenmorangie or Ardbeg, but if they were to sell it today, I reckon they would sell it for at least 300 million, yeah. such as the demand. So that's a pretty decent investment uh, yeah. on, their, on their behalf. <laughs> You invested very heavily in Ardbeg and have made it what it is today. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, I just wanted to actually mention Glenmorrie as well. I know mm. you haven't got it anymore, mm. but you did own Glenmorrie. Mm -hmm. And the reason I mention it is it's a society favourite yeah. for a lot of the staff, for a Good lot of reason. our members. Exactly. I just wondered if you got a few words on Glenmorrie before we... Uh... Yeah, because when I was head of distilleries, the three distilleries, Glenmorangie, Ardbeg and Glenmurray, all reported into me. And I loved Glen, Glen Murray and mm. the, their legendary distillery manager, mm. 
Ed Dodson Ed. was very, very helpful to me when I first joined the Glenmorangie company as Glenmorangie Distillery Manager. So again, I've got a big soft spot for it, and it was a fabulous whiskey. We never quite found the right niche for it in terms of how to market it. And in some respects, it was one of many, many, many very fine Speyside malts. But the, the actual reality was, and again, this is boring financial facts and figures maybe have we any accountants in the audience tonight get out get out <laughs> sorry <laughs> um, that's, the, that's, that's the director yeah, right. when the Glenmorangie company was put up for sale by the McDonald family the market capitalisation value of the company at that time was 170 million so in other words based on the share price at that time but because LVMH and Pernod Ricard of France both really wanted to buy the company. They got into a fierce bidding war together and it drove the share price through the roof. And LVMH ended up paying 330 million for the Glenmorangie company. So I think as part of that, they, they wanted to try and bring back a little bit of money into the company. So they sold our site at Broxburn, Mm -hmm. which is where our headquarters were at that time. Nothing to do with the office, but they wanted the warehousing capacity. It can hold about 500,000 barrels and the various things there. So they sold that to Diageo, and they sold Glen Murray to uh, Picard of France. And that brought a, a, a big chunk of cash back into the business. I think... If that decision was being made now, there's no way we would have sold the Glen Murray distillery. But there you go. And it, it well, makes a really, really nice whiskey. Well, the good news is it's found a nice little niche sitting in our green yeah. bottles because yeah. we bottle lots of it. And when good it comes stuff. through the panel, it's all, yeah. almost invariably mm-hmm. phenomenal. Yeah. Just quickly, because you were talking about the Broxburn size, yeah. and I just wanted to flag this to just to show how the relationship is, c- continues. I don't know if you know this, Bill, but um, we've, we've, we're opening our own bottling hall. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got our own warehouse and own bottling hall somewhere between here and Glasgow. And actually, the original bottling line that uh, we used during the Glenmorangie days as yeah. we call them to bottle the society bottles uh, we've just recommissioned and I saw a video of it running today getting prepared and ready to, to start Excellent. bottling so we're going to be bottling ourselves yeah. um, on that old line and yeah. apparently it still stinks of Ardbeg yeah well that's what happens if you put PT whiskey through it you never get rid of the yeah, smell yeah well so we're, we're, yeah, we were talking today about doing sensory analysis yeah. to see if we flushed all that Ardbeg yeah. out yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you can imagine ladies and gents how tricky it is having a bottling hall that bottles both Glenmorangie, yes. arguably one of the most delicate whiskies in Scotland, and Ardbeg, arguably one of the peatiest and most robust. <laughs> we, we, put it this way, we've had a few cock-ups along There's, the way. Well, 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 you say about, you know, never going out, well, I mean, flushing water through it, and that'll be tainted. I'm sure there's a, probably a, a market for Ardbeg-flavoured water, given <laughs> Talking of that, and again, this is one of many tangents I'll go off at tonight. My favourite country in the world to visit when I'm doing PR trips is Japan, because it's just so different in every way. And on several occasions, I've visited this fabulous bar in Kobe, which is next to Osaka in the southern part of Honshu. And this bar sells only two things. It sells water and Ardbeg and nothing else. (laughs) 
and any time I've been in there, it's absolutely packed out. However, I think we I should get should to the do, point yeah, here. Yeah, I thought I should keep moving you. along. Okay, ladies and gents, how many of you here tonight have visited the Glenmorangie Distillery? Yeah, we've got, got a few of you. So for those of you who haven't, Glenmorangie is one of, and correct me here, Andy, please, about 165 malt whisky distilleries currently operating in Scotland. Well, it depends on, yeah, yeah. I and mean, it will have increased by tomorrow. So, yeah, but yes. al almost yeah. certainly. Yeah. And, you know, we, we all make our malt whisky in essentially the same way because the Scotch whisky regulations dictate that we do that. But to me, there are three things at Glenmorangie that are maybe a little bit different from other distilleries. The first of these is our water source. And Andy, yes, we will taste the whiskey in about 40 minutes' time. Okay. <laughs> Joke. 37. So the, the, the water source at Glenmorangie is quite unusual. It's a spring called the Tarlogie Spring. And because of the geology underneath the ground there limestone and sandstone rock we've got very hard water so very high levels of calcium and magnesium salts which is extremely unusual for scotland there is one other whiskey okay let, let, let's see maybe this will be the first quiz question because i've got a couple of nice prizes with me tonight there is one other whiskey in scotland which has similarly hard yeah. water to Glenmorangie. You're not allowed to take part in No, but I'm good. <laughs> it's not the Glenlivet, you know, no, 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 from no. Josie's Well. It's not no, Ardna Merkin, no. One of the old school, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not Glen Kinshee, which is just 10 minutes away from where I live. Dallas Do? Dallas Was that Dallas Do? Yeah, no. Dallas it's not Ooh. Talisker, no. Was that correct? Is that Glen Ord? It's not Glen Ord either. Okay, I, I, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a bigger clue. They also have their own private spring that supplies their water. It's not Royal Brackla. It's, you know, in the same sort of neck of the woods as Glenmorangie, maybe a little bit further north. Okay, right, we'll, we'll scrap that. I'll ask another question. It's Highland Park in Orkney. So Catty Maggie's well also produces really? very, very hard water. Any blah, blah, blah. So the, the calcium and magnesium salts in our water are important cofactors for a healthy fermentation. And I can say this with some authority because that's what I did my PhD thesis on. During the fermentation, along with producing ethanol, the, the yeast produces a range of other alcohols, you know, it, it produces uh, propanol, butanol, etc. It produces higher alcohols, fusel oils, it produces aldehydes and ketones and fatty acid esters, which all give the really nice fruity flavour to whisky. So it is my theory as a scientist that that's one of the reasons why Glenmorangie makes such a fruity whisky. And if anyone thinks I'm just spouting a load of BS here, and you know, I might yes. be from well, time to time. Well, maybe. If you brew a style of beer called IPA, India Pale Ale, and I'm not talking about the over-hopped American versions here. I'm talking about the classic 
Burton-upon-Trent style. The reason these beers are, were so successful there is because the water, the brewing liquor in Burton-upon-Trent is very hard water because of the limestone rock. And other brewers in other parts of the UK actually Burtonise their water by adding calcium magnesium salts. And guess what? IPA is quite a fruity style of beer. Anyway, in, in, enough of that. The second point of difference, and I'm going back to the giraffe here, Glenmorangie has the tallest necks of any malt whisky distillery in Scotland. And again, if you think back to your school chemistry days, the theory of distillation is actually quite straightforward. You boil your liquid up and the volatile compounds turn into gas before the water does. They rise up the neck of the still, you cool them down in either a condenser or a worm tub, and thus separate the spirit from the water. And, you know, the, the alcohols, the aldehydes, the, they're all part of that. But if you have very, very tall stills, or if you put a water cooling jacket on, or if you put a boil pot and various other things, you increase, in, increase the rate of reflux which means that not all of these compounds can reach the top. They condense back into liquid, they fall back into the still and are redistilled. And you know, there's various ways of doing that. You know, as I said, a water cooling jacket, having the head of the stills flat, putting a boil pot at Diageo's Crag and Moor distillery, the line arm actually slopes upward. And all of these things encourage reflux and redistillation. And when this happens, basically it doesn't allow the longer chain alcohols, which we call the fusel oils, to go over the neck and into the spirit. Now, ethanol itself is a very tiny mole uh, molecule. It's only two C2H5OH, so it's two carbon atoms linked together with hydrogen and, and one hydroxyl group. So this boils very readily, very quickly. So it doesn't alter the percentage alcohol you collect, but some of these longer chain molecules are essentially filtered out. And the lack of these oily compounds allows some of the more fruity flavors to be picked up more readily. And that's why Glenmorangie's spirit is so delicate. At Ardbeg, we have every bit as much of, of these compounds, especially the esters and the aldehydes, as we have at Glenmorangie, because we have a purifier on the line arm of the spirit still. And I'll talk about that when we come to, to discuss Ardbeg. But because the base malted barley for Ardbeg is so heavily peated, you don't always pick it up. So the tall stills at Glenmorangie make a very delicate spirit a spirit which is very fast maturing. And because of that, my choice of barrels for maturing Glenmorangie is critically important. Again, hands up, ladies and gents. How many of you have been to Macallan and Speyside and seen their fabulous distillery? Macallan has amongst the shortest stills in the industry, and their line arm actually slopes down at an angle of almost 45 uh, degrees. So they have next to no reflux. So all of the fusel oils go over and is captured in their spirit. So their spirit is much more gutsy and full-bodied and slightly oilier. In no way, shape or form am I saying it's not as good as ours. It's just different. So their robust spirit, when it's whacked into a nice sherry cask from Spain, 
will happily dwell there for 10 or 12 or 18 years. <clears throat> if I put my Glenmore spirit straight into a sherry cask, which I occasionally do for a bit of fun or a bit of an experiment, all of that finesse and delicacy is lost. So my preference is to use American Oak X bourbon barrels. And I think these type of casts allow more of your terroir, if you like, to shine through. So to finally get to the point before we taste this whiskey, <coughs> nearly all Glenmorangie spirit is matured in American Oak X bourbon barrels. But I like sherry casks from time to time, as long as they are judiciously used. So whiskey number one, which we can now taste. Ta-da! <laughs> um, I use a small proportion of sherry casks. Now, when I joined the Glenmorangie company at the end of 1994, the 18-year-old in these days, to me, was far too heavily sherried, and I didn't think it showcased the spirit mm. to its best. So I changed the recipe, and the way I make this now is all of the spirit is matured in American Oak X bourbon barrels, and then after 15 years, I take about 30 to 35% of that mature whiskey and re-rack it into Oloroso sherry casks for the final three years or so, and then I blend the two elements back together again. And, you know, I, I dare say there are some people who would prefer this to still be a bit more heavily sherried, but I wanted this to taste like the big brother of Glenmorangie original and demonstrate a lot of the classic house style. So, you know, a, a lot of complexity, a lot of elegance, a lot of fruity flavours in there. So if you want to just swirl your glass and inhale the bouquet, you know, this has been poured for at least half an hour, and I can immediately get a little frisson of these toffee notes from the sherry cask. But I've got lots of lovely floral and fruity, you know, something that reminds me of honeycomb or orange and grapefruit breakfast marmalade, something like that. I, I occasionally jokingly refer to this as the Chanel number no. five of malt whiskey because it has such a perfumed bouquet to it. And interestingly, Andy's passed me the water here. I almost always add a splash of water to my whiskey if I'm drinking it. But actually for Glenmorangie 18, I don't normally do that. But since Andy has led me along here, I'm going to just add a wee splash to it. And of course, as I'm sure you know, ladies and gents, we refer to this as releasing the serpent, because once you add the water, it opens up the bouquet, which rises up out the neck of the glass like a snake or serpent. And you know, that's a bit of marketing BS there, but water genuinely does open up the bouquet. Now, a word of caution here, if you're drinking an extremely old whiskey, 25 years old or above, if you add water, it can sometimes bring forth some of the more bitter, resinous elements of the oak wood. It can bring some of the tannins out. So be very careful if you're, if you're tasting a very old whiskey. But with the water in there, I swear I'm getting lemon blossom, I'm getting honeysuckle, I'm getting narcissus, I'm getting night-scented jasmine, and again, you know, I'm 
getting a little bit carried away here, but it's just to illustrate that this is an extremely complex, beautiful whisky. And when you take a sip, as I'm sure you, you always do, ladies and gents, we're not just thinking about the primary flavour, but we're thinking of the texture of the whisky. And that leads me on to something slightly controversial, mm -hmm. Andy, which I'll talk about in a minute. Okay. But let's try a sip and consider the texture of this. Mm. It's 43. So I, I, I'm, it's, it's a very good question because it, it nicely segues into what I'm going to talk about in a minute. But it's a beautiful, soft, luscious, slightly mouth-watering, and there's a degree of viscosity in there. You know that? That slight stickiness. And you nearly always get this, ladies and gents, particularly if there's sherry casks in there. It gives that nice, soft, oily viscosity. Mm -hmm. Primary flavours, I would say, are again sweet and fruity. I definitely get that heather honey. I get a touch mm -hmm. of apricot or peach. There's a little bit of tangy, bittersweet citrus. And then this builds up into some of the more base flavours. A touch of leather, maybe. Some nice toffee or raisins from the sherry. And, you know, obviously don't worry if you don't find anything in there. But I just think this is such a beautiful, mellow, easy-drinking whiskey. It's lovely. I think it's quite herbal, though, quite <clears throat> yeah. grassy as yeah. well. And it's, it's just there, there's so much going on there. And, and I'm, I'm guessing your sherry casks, but a real nice tannins and a little tingliness and a little dryness yeah. as well. It just, I just like that little bit of leather to balance it out. Yeah. Now, to the gentleman's question here about the strength, this whisky is chill-filtered, but our chill-filtration regime at Glenmorangie is very gentle. So we don't, once we reduce uh, to bottling strength, we don't chill right down to nearly zero. We only take it down to between six and eight degrees Celsius. And that brings some of the, the fatty acids, uh, the, the flock out of solution. And then we've got quite a loose wide pour filter because I still like to leave that, that texture in there. Most companies these days, sadly, are taking it right down to zero and then putting it through a very, very tight filter. And okay, it maintains a nice bright appearance in the bottle, which seems to be important in certain less mature markets globally. But I think when you do that, you take that lovely texture out. And if I'm sitting on the judging panel of the International Wine and Spirit Competition or the International Spirits Challenge, for example, I'll actually mark whiskies down if I find them thin on the palate and that thinness also seems to bring out a slightly metallic taste and you know there's one or two very very well-known brands which i can't possibly name here but i think their chill filtration regime is far too harsh so if you ever taste a glenmorangie and it seems a bit thin something's gone wrong and I should be fired. But, you know, it, it's quite important that it's not just about aroma and flavour. I think part of the, the delight of single malt scotch is this lovely texture. And if you've got a nice oily texture, it makes the flavour linger in your palate for mm. much longer. And that's another thing I've noticed with certain brands, that while the flavour, the primary flavour is actually very nice, after 20 seconds, it's disappeared. Actually, 
Maybe they're right and we're wrong, because if it disappears quickly, then you want to drink more to get it over again. But seriously, uh, the Glenmorangie 80 year old, our whiskies which are chill filtered, it's a much more gentle chill filtration mm. regime. So the final thing, I, sorry Andy, no, question. Say, it's, it's, quite, it's not a question, it's more of a, of a, a comment. You said about this harsh filtration, chill filtration mm. regime. It, what what's cra seems crazy to me is it's not necessary. The research shows that you only need to, 10 degrees mm. will do it. Yeah. Why is everybody still pushing it down to zero? Well, we, we have had, have had incidences in the recent past, and I'm talking about markets like China, uh, you know, Russia, when we were sending whiskey there, because they are not so used to things Russia. like that, mm. when the bottles came out, and if there was a slight opacity or cloudiness there, this was viewed as a fault, and the bottles were sent back. So the very extreme chill filtration is to negate that happening. Sure. Yeah. But again, anecdotally, I was in Boston, in Massachusetts about 10 years ago. I mean, I've been back since then, but 10 years ago, for some reason, I travelled out there in January. And let me assure you, in Boston in January, it's not warm. And the, the bottles for our tasting had been stored by the sales rep in the, the, the boot, the trunk of his car overnight. The temperature got down to about minus 12. And every single bottle including the original and the 18, which we, we, we do chill filter, had what looked like a little layer of cream sitting on, on top of the bottle. And I thought, that's great. That's a sign that we've still got some of these lovely so esters in there. Yeah. So George and I just held the bottles in the palm of our sweaty hands for five or ten minutes and shook them, and it all went back into solution. But it's the same, you know, if you add a bit of water, or especially if you add an ice cube and you see this lovely swirling opacity, to me that's a sign of quality in whiskey. And what I can't get my head around here, and I'm, I'm looking directly at Sonia Ranieri there as a French lady, but you know, in the wine industry, it's almost like sediment is a sign of quality or a badge of honour, but somehow in the whiskey industry it's a bad thing. I was going to ask you a bit about sediment as well. With your hard water, do you tend to get more... There's another thing that we sometimes see floating around in whiskey, which is calcium oxalate. Do you see more uh, calcium oxalate? Andy, absolutely we do. But we no longer use the Tartalogie spring water for, to reduce for, for the spirit. Okay. We used to do that. Yeah. And, you know, if you had calcium oxalate, if you reduced the spirit with the spring water and matured it in a sherry, sherry cast, cast, it was yeah. a double whammy. Yeah. Okay. But again, you know, calcium oxalate is not going to kill you. No, and I think it's something we might have to get used to, this yeah. sort of idea of consumer education, and you saying yeah. we need to just be used yeah. to the idea it goes cloudy. Yeah. Well, I think uh, this is a guess, but I think as we see more of these quality active sherry casts that the, mm -hmm. we're using as an industry now, I think this is going to be an increase in incidence in, in yeah. a sea in calcium oxalate. The, the, there's no um, question about that. Despite us using demon water yeah. and so on. I just, do, you, do, you think that's, do you think that's likely? I, I think it's highly likely, and we obviously have a little job in our hands to educate exactly. people yeah. that, yeah. you know, it's not bad for you, mm -hmm. you know, and again... It, you can probably get it to a certain extent to go back into solution. Mm. But yeah, yeah it, there's no question that it's a risk. Yeah. Before we move on to whiskey number two, the one final thing I'll say about Glenmorangie 18, and okay, I, I, I do admit maybe I'm a teensy little bit biased here, but I think Glenmorangie 18-year-old is still one of the great bargains in the Scotch whiskey industry, and we don't charge nearly enough money for it. <laughs> 
that is going to change even because with fancy our, box. Yeah, our, our friend, even with that, Andy. But our, <laughs> our, our friends at LVMH also believe that this we don't charge enough for this. So fill your boots, ladies and gents, what, before the price goes up. Is what I would say. Okay. <laughs> Any quick questions about the 18-year-old before we move on to the signet? Okay, right. So, moving swiftly on now to whiskey number two. And th th this has probably been the most personal project I've ever worked on. This has been a real labour of love. Um, I had to go through many hoops with the Scotch Whiskey Association. I had to persuade my company to allow me to do it. But th the original idea for this product goes right back to my student days in Edinburgh, where I was discovering single malt scotch, fine wine. One of the other things that my pal Ian and I um, discovered, uh, this is Chelly Alexandra, my best friend Ian. We started drinking Jamaica Blue Mountain coffee. And the reason we did that is because in the James Bond novels by Ian Fleming, James Bond drinks Jamaica Blue Mountains. We thought, we're going to drink it too. But what surprised me was that up until then, I had always been disappointed by coffee, that the smell of freshly brewing coffee to me was always way, way, way better than the taste. And I was always left slightly disappointed. So being a scientist and a geek, I started to study the geography of where coffee beans were grown how the roasting could bring out different flavours. At the same time, I discovered single malt Scotch whisky. So the two ideas kind of merged. And I thought, what would happen if you put barley grains in a coffee roasting drum? And you know, it's a silly, simple thought. But I held that thought for many years. Now, the first 10 years of my career were with the DCL, Distillers Company Limited, Diageo as they're now known. But in these days, I wasn't senior enough to make decisions like that. Plus, again, it was a very conservative company in these days. That has changed completely now. So it wasn't until I left the DCL to join Glenmorangie as distillery manager that I finally started to seriously put this idea into practice. Now, a, a small coffee roasting drum was simply not going to work for Glenmorangie. Um, the, the mash tun at Glenmorangie can take up to 11 tons of malt, so 11,000 kilograms of malted barley, whereas a, a tabletop coffee roaster can do about 10 kilograms if you're lucky. So I thought, okay, that's not going to work. Of course, I'm also a fan of fine wine and of craft beer, as you can see. And so my love of craft beer, thought, well, I, I know how they make stout and chocolate porter and things like that. And they use differently roasted cereal grains. So after experimenting by tasting uh, roast barley, uh, black malt, crystal malt, carapils, I settled on high roast chocolate malt as having the taste profile closest to roasting coffee beans. So I carried out some secret experiments at the Glenmorangie distillery. And you know, this was really 
not easy to do at all. I mean, to, to use some of these specialty malts, which basically disintegrate to powder when you put them through the mill, you really need a mash filter. But we just had a classic distillery louter ton. So eventually I was able to get the mash bill up to about 30% chocolate malt, 70% classic pot still malt. And even then we had terrible runoff problems and depressed yields, but we stuck with it and we, we produced a spirit the, the new make spirit on its own was really terrible and it was nothing at all like Glenmorangie's delicate fruity spirit. But I filled it into a range of barrel types. I had faith in my vision. So we went back to producing batches every other year since then. Then finally in 2007, the first batches of the chocolate malt spirit had reached 12 years old by then and I tasted it. And I, I, I quite liked it, but again, it was just a little bit too intense for the Glenmorangie house style. So I spent another year working in my lab, trying different recipes. And in these days, I, I had a young lady working with me called Rachel Barry, who has subsequently moved on elsewhere. But Rachel was very instrumental in helping me develop this recipe as well. So, I mean, I take my hat off to her for that and we finally ended up with what we have in the bottle here today. So it's a very complicated recipe. There's about seven or eight different styles of Glenmorangie in here. The beating heart of the recipe is the whiskey from the chocolate malt, which is 12 years old. I have, usually sometimes a bit older than that, I have some classic Glenmorangie from American Oak X bourbon barrels to give that lovely creaminess. I have some Glenmorangies aged typically 10 years in American Oak bourbon and finished for five years in Oloroso sherry casks. I have some aged 10 years in bourbon and then finished for about five years in virgin charred oak, which is where the spicy backbone of the taste profile comes from. One or two other secret Glenmorangies and then a top dressing of our oldest whiskies. And once I put the recipe together, it's typically married in vat for about three months before bottling. So this is the end result, ladies and gents, the mighty Glenmorangie Signet. Bottled at 46% ABV, it's non-chill filtered. And the main reason it doesn't have an age statement on it is because the recipe changes from batch to batch and we only bottle this about twice a year but the age ranges in, in the recipe from about 12 almost up to 40 years old and as I'm sure you all know ladies and gents if you choose to put an age on your bottle of scotch whiskey it has to be the age of the youngest whiskey in the blend recipe and to us, this is so much more than just a 12-year-old whiskey. The average age, and I'm, I'm technically I'm not really allowed to say this, but I'll say it anyway, the average age typically is about 21 years old. But this is not about age, it's about unusual raw materials and different barrel types and the taste profile. So the deep 
deep colour here does not come from the chocolate malt. The chocolate malt spirit is clear when it's distilled. But this is as a result of the sherry casks and the virgin charred oak barrels. And on the nose, you know, this is quite different from the 18-year-old. And I think I'm getting some of these nice mocha or coffee or chocolate accords coming out here. Andy, this time I'm going to happily release my serpent. Please. Go. And the water just brings out, you know, a little bit more of these aromatic top notes. I'm going to see how old some of the members of the audience here, to see if there's anyone else as old as me. Do, do any of you remember a product called Camp Coffee with yes. chicory? Mm -hmm. That actually came, it was liquid coffee in a bottle. Mm. That's what this reminds me of, camp with chicory, that top note. Now, when I was writing the final tasting notes for this, ladies and gents, I, I took some samples home, and my darling daughter, who I think was 14 years old at the time, uh, she, she's always had a good nose and palate, and she said, Daddy, it's like tiramisu. So that combination of chocolate and cream and liqueur went straight into the tasting notes. Alexandra did spend three years in rehab after that. No, I'm joking. I need to be careful because she's actually in the audience tonight. But, you know, if you... It, come on, it's, it's my job as your dad to embarrass you. So let, let's try a sip, ladies and gents. And again, it's big, it's viscous, it's mouth-coating, and vroom! If you didn't get it on the nose, you must now get these lovely chocolate, coffee, almond, biscotti-type notes. Mm -hmm. Lots of sizzling spices in there, in particular ginger and clove. And then in the aftertaste, you get a curious combination of a touch of leather and oak tannin, but you, for the first time, you might just get some of the classic Glenmorangie notes like vanilla or butterscotch and maybe even a little bit of tangy Seville orange in there. You know, th this is quite different from the other whiskies <clears throat> in the range. And if any of you, like myself, occasionally have a bad habit... No, not, not that one. I mean, if you enjoy a nice cigar like a Monte Cristo Number no. 4 or a Cohiba Siglo 6, this is a great whiskey to pair with it. Whereas the 18-year-old and the original are probably a little bit too delicate to go with that. So, Andy, that, that's Glenmorangie, the second one, Glenmorangie Signet. Any? Well, well, at risk of destroying all that wonderful romantic chat about it, um, geeky question, but yeah. did you, have you ever been able to identify any of the flavour compounds that you think might be responsible for that roasty toasty flavours? Yep, it, 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 indeed we have and we've done some very very rudimentary work with the Scotch Whiskey Research Institute using their famous GCO gas mm. chromatographic olfactometry you used it a lot. equipment so um, I'll be quite honest, I, I can't actually remember the names of some of the compounds in there because it was, it was in, interestingly, um, there was, I, I saw a student from Harriet Watt speak relatively recently. You might have seen this. Um, but she'd actually, yeah, um, distilled various um, mm -hmm. 
roasted malts <laughs> and identified a number of different compounds, which were all great candidates, whether, the, you know, I mean, whether yeah. they survive maturation, but this seems to suggest it does. Yeah. Um, I, I, I know exactly the paper you're talking about. I did read it myself, and I'm laughing here because the paper kind of recommended that the Scotch whisky industry maybe should look at using chocolate malt and things like that. Well, and I thought, did, did that 20 years uh, ago? I've been stood here thinking about that, exactly that. This has become a real trend, hasn't yeah. it? Um, yeah. A lot of the, everyone is looking for flavour diversification <laughs> and mash bills become one of them. And obviously with single malt, it can only be malted <laughs> barley, yeah. but using speciality yeah. malts. Um, Which are still technically malted barley. Yeah, guys and, up the road, for example. Yeah, of course. And you it's one of the, the most surprising things to me because we launched Signet in 2008. And, you know, it was a slow burn. It took a while for people to get to notice it. It took us a while to work out how to actually describe and categorise this. But, you know, that, that, that's... Um, so 2008 to mm -hmm. 2018 to now, that's 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. I'm not good at maths. I, I've seen hardly anyone else actually trying to copy this. The only yeah. version I actually remember, apart from Westland in Seattle, was the Johnny Walker Espresso edition, which I'm guessing... Yeah. I, I, I uh, know many other people have done it, Andy, but I've not seen much Well, I'm going to raise your signet with a Belvenie roasted malt, which yep. was a 14-year-old that David yep. did that yep. was a um, similar idea, I guess. Uh, indeed. Um, but a very limited release, yeah. as you probably remember. Did, did, did any of you get to try the Johnny Walker Espresso edition? It was a travel retail exclusive, and I, I didn't taste it myself, but I can only but imagine that the espressoness came from using chocolate malt. You would think. Yeah. yeah. Andy, you've got one for us to taste I now, have, I think. actually. We, um, so... Oh. Can I ask Right, so, so the, the SWA were a little bit uncomfortable about it and I had a number of meetings with them and technically the high rose chocolate malt still is malted barley because after the germination of the barley it's given a very heavy roast the temperature's taken up to about 280 degrees celsius so as far as I was concerned it still was single malt but I think their concern at the time was that it would change the flavour profile too much and it might become not recognisable as Scotch whisky. And from that perspective, I've, I have to say that they, they had a point. But once I explained to them that it was only a particular percentage of the mash bill and that it was only one small part of an overall recipe, they were a little bit more relaxed with it. And once we tasted it, they said, yeah, it still tastes like a single malt scotch. So, so that, that was where they came from, from that perspective. Hmm. Yeah, but... I was just saying, obviously, um, blended your chocolate malt with a lot of other whiskey. Hmm. What's it like on its own? And have you ever thought about doing that by itself? Um, we actually launched a product. Uh, believe it or not, there's a Signet Boutique at Incheon Airport in Seoul in Korea. Never been there. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, this was centred around, I mean, it obviously sells all the Glenmorangie range, but Signet is the hero, if you like. So I did a limited release for the opening of that, which we called Signet Ristretto. See what we did there? How, see how clever these marketeers are, gosh. Um, 
and it was 100% chocolate malt whiskey. Um, if you think Signet is unsubtle, this was a slap in the face. So it was just like comparing a nice cappuccino to a, a double espresso. Yeah. Uh, personally, I didn't really like it myself, but that, that wasn't the point. It was just to give a point of difference. So you mentioned the struggles of approaching the SWA and etc. And, and the struggle is kind of approaching blending the signet. How do you sell that to your higher-ups and approach to how can we actually get this through the bottle and go with what sounds like more of a gut feeling than yeah. that? How, how do you sell that to yeah. your higher-ups? When you say the higher-ups, do you, do you mean within the company? Within the company or just yeah. approaching that sort of way of... I, I don't. Forefronting. Yeah. Forefronting using specialty models in the blends yeah. and using a blend of sherry yeah. or sherry so, yeah. on top of a Sorry, I, I, I'm maybe being a little bit flippant here, but, but I don't give a shit what the higher-ups think about what I do. I exist to try and make good flavour. And, and to be fair, they've got total faith in me. Now, obviously, sometimes I have to backtrack a little bit when it turns out we're doing something which the SWA are uncomfortable with. But, you know, the, I, I'm an ambassador, first and foremost, for Scotch whisky, not just Glenmorangie. And the SWA do an incredible job. If, if it wasn't for the SWA, there's no question, Scotch whisky simply would not have the cachet and the pedigree it has. So it's in all of our best interest to work with the SWA and... You know, I haven't really pushed the envelope that far. The, the, the big challenge will come when we decide to bottle something which is not legally Scotch whisky, but has been produced at the Glenmorangie distillery. And that will happen. Gut feeling as much as sort of yeah, was yeah. blasé enough to say, it, this is it. Yeah, it's, Let's go ahead with it. And... it, it my guiding principle for everything I do is does it actually taste good? And, you know, unfortunately, there's one or two examples out there that, in my opinion, simply don't taste good. So what's the point in doing it, I would say? So I think you have to make something which is going to continue to be good enough to hold your brand name, but also be good enough to keep the good name of Scotch whisky up there. But, you know, it's an interesting question. With, 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 with great difficulty. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've built an experimental distillery at Glenmorangie. And of course, after the, the big press launch and a very detailed article that appeared in the Financial Times weekend section, once again, I was invited in for discussions with the SWA. <laughs> and I just said, look, you have to realise when I'm being interviewed for these things with my pink trousers and my Gucci sneakers, I've very much got my PR hat on. So I'm talking a lot of bullshit, like my marketing <laughs> colleagues. But in reality, I'm not going to do anything to get their backup. It's highly likely that at some stage I'll make something that will not legally be allowed to take the name Scotch Whiskey on it. But, you know, I'll, I'll worry about that when the time comes. But as we yeah. said earlier, sorry, go on. Do not think that uh, whiskey, Scotch whisky, already encompasses a lot of very different beverages. I, yeah. I, I do, I, and the Scotch, the Scotch Whisky Association did relax the regulations a couple of years ago, 
where it says that any liquor which has been traditionally matured in oak barrels is allowed to be used in the Scotch whisky industry. So that immediately precludes gin. Mm. And we, we all know there are one or two gins out there which are using barrel ageing to try and give themselves some differentiation. That wouldn't be allowed. But that, that opened up, uh, uh, to a certain extent, the, the possibilities of trying different things. At the same time, the Scotch Whisky Association set up an industry expert panel, because I'm actually on that panel, who, if there's ever anything a little bit dodgy, then it goes to the panel who have to take a view, does this still taste like Scotch whisky? And if the panel rejects it, then it's... So, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right, so there's a myriad of different things in there. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's another question for another day. Shall I? Uh, yes, please. Well, thank yes. you, Bill. Um, you've had 40, well, an hour and two minutes to present yeah. two whiskies. I've got minus two minutes to ah, present. Ah, right, okay. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Have I? <clears throat> thank you. Uh, I've lost mine. There's one there. I think that's the, Oh, sorry. That's yeah. them there. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so yeah, so my turn. And uh, mm-hmm. so, a Glenmorangie or dis- uh, or whiskey from Distillery One Two Five, as we would as we would say here at the Society. Uh, my guess is this is a cask that we probably um, acquired back in those days when mm-hmm. the Society was owned um, by Glenmorangie or LVMH. Um, so sixteen years old. I guess it puts it about about there. Um, this is uh, this is so this is Glenmorangie. Um, you can talk about the spirit. I'll talk mm. about the cask. Mm. So this was initially matured for the majority of those sixteen years in a in, in a in an ex bourbon barrel. Um, I guess very much like what a lot mm. of your stock will be sitting in. Uh, but then what we've done is we've taken the spirits team here, so that's Kai and Ewan have taken that mature spirit and uh, we say re-racked. Um, we've re-racked that into a, uh, an ex-PX sherry cask. Uh, and it's spent 18 months in that cask uh, where the character of the whiskey will have changed profoundly. Um, Beautifully fragrant. Yeah, so I'd be interested, in, Bill, I'd be obviously interested in your, your thoughts on the flavours and taste. I mean, <coughs> excuse me, you can, look at, you can look at the tasting panel's notes for this. Um, you can... Uh, you can, uh, you know, you can make your, form your own opinions about the flavour and the character of the whisky. I wanted to talk a little bit about where did this cask come from. Um, we, um, in in the last couple of years, uh, the society, the spirits team here, have committed themselves to significantly increasing the amount of sherry matured whisky that we bottle. The reason being is we know that's what you, our members, are looking for. If we look at what sells successfully or really, really well, it's peated whisky, unsurprisingly, we'll come to Ardbeg, and, and it's whisky that's been matured in, in cherry casks. We know it's, there's a huge, uh, there's a huge uh, thirst for, for those whiskies. So we are massively increasing the amount of our whisky that we mature in cherry casks. Just before, what was it, the September, I think it was, before the pandemic, Richard, Richard, myself, Kai, and Ewan, we went out to Jerez to start checking out some of the cooperages and bodegas. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to see which of these guys you respect and work mm-hmm. with. Uh, but we went and checked out some of these cooperages. Now, correct me if you think I'm wrong, Bill, but not that long ago, 
Getting reliable sherry casks from Hareth wasn't that easy. Very, very inconsistent, often mm -hmm. didn't deliver any flavor or color whatsoever. Uh, this idea of old bodega casks being mm -hmm. great just simply wasn't true. But there's been a profound change in, um, in that in recent years. Uh, and we went out and saw a number of different producers, um, cooperages like mm -hmm. Jose Miguel Martin, who have invested significantly in research and development to ensure that what we call, our term we're going to use is the modern sherry cask. Mm -hmm. These casks that have been made specifically for the maturation of Scotch whiskey, the sherry being almost incidental, if you like, part of the production process. So the casks are, so the wood is selected, the wood is seasoned, uh, the cask is built and the cask is heat treated specifically to ensure it delivers for the Scotch whisky maturation. It's then seasoned with sherry mm -hmm. as part of that process to soften, soften, for want of a better word, the wood to remove some of the harsher tannins from the wood, usually using things like Oloroso sherry, sometimes PX sherry. And I think we're in a position now where, <coughs> as an industry, we've got much better yeah. sherry casks. Yeah, well, yeah, and he's 100% correct that while the, the image of the old traditional Solera system yeah is very romantic. The reality is that these casks are kept for decades yeah, because yeah. the sherry producers are not looking for the influence of the oak wood. They're simply looking for it as a vessel to hold yeah. the wines to ferment or oxidise them. Yeah. I, and I'm glad Andy mentioned José Miguel Martín, who to me are head and shoulders above anyone else in the industry. Phenomenal. And uh, Miguel Martín, the owner of the company, 80% of his business is supplying quality casks, almost almost made of toasted American oak, yep. not Spanish American, oak, yep. to the Scotch whisky industry. Now, the, the remaining 20% of Miguel's business is making um, sherry vinegars mm. from the twice or thrice used sherry wines, which have picked up so much influence from the oak wood for the casks that come here to Scottyland that they can't be bottled as sherries. And then the other remaining 10 to 15%, he actually has a bodega which makes fabulous, fabulous sherries. And I can't, I can't yeah. quite remember the, the name, the brand name yeah. he has. Um, uh, it'll, it'll come. Hmm? That's Valdivia. It, Valdivia. Yeah. Well done. Blue Richard. label. Yeah. yeah. There's a bottle yeah. sitting there. So, <coughs> excuse me. To so, bring... so, so the reality is we get a top quality yeah. cask specifically giving us what we need for our whiskies. Yeah. So I think as an industry, we're in a much better place yeah. uh, than we were even five years ago. Yeah. And I can remember sitting in meetings at the Scotch Whiskey Research Institute, bemoaning yeah. the um, poor quality control in, in, yeah. in Spanish cooperages. Yeah. And we've come a long way from that. Well, if you work with some of the guys that we have been out and found and checked out. So we're working with just a very small handful of these cooperage partners to provide us with these great casks. Now, I'm going to completely contradict myself because actually the cask uh, that we've used in this case is an old bodega cask. Mm -hmm. um, but from a very carefully selected bodega, mm -hmm. Uh, and that's from the bodega of um, ninth generation winemakers, um, Jimenez Spanola. So uh, this is a, an eccentric gentleman um, whose business was founded. I'm just going to actually check my page here because <laughs> to get the year right. But they founded, yeah, 1729, this family started mm -hmm. making wine. It is now in the capable hands of, of Jose Anto Antonio, and his uh, lovely Mexican wife, Laura, and they are still making the most fabulously interesting and deliciously tasty wines. Interestingly, 
all of their wines are made from PX grapes, so the mm -hmm. Pedro Jimenez grape. Now, anybody's into, who's into sherry? Please tell me you are. Yeah, so we, we, we love sherry here. Um, you, you when you think of PX, you probably think of sweet, sticky, dessert wine style sherry. These guys make almost every style of wine you can possibly mm -hmm. imagine from exclusively PX grapes. They have their own Appalachian for this in Jerez. Um, they make dry, still table wines. Um, they make um, sticky Oloroso PX type wines. In fact, they even make an extraordinarily bone-dry vino uh, from PX grapes. So, you know, think classic mm -hmm. Tia Pepe style, um, which sadly they don't bottle, but we were lucky enough to taste Richard and I straight from mm. the cask in the bodega. Mm. You've probably had a yep. similar experience. Yeah. Um, but absolutely incredible winemakers who um, invest a huge amount of care in their vines, their grapes and their sherry making procedure. All of the grapes are picked at night. Uh, we saw the harvest uh, under the headlights of this tractor that looked as though it was probably built in Victorian times. Mm. Uh, huge team come in in the middle of the night after, or after sunset, pick the grapes and then they lay and they dry in the sun and they're eventually used to make, make the wines. Um, they also take great care in, in the same way the Scotch whisky industry does now in selecting the wood and the cast that they're going to use to mature those wines. And my understanding is that the cast that they use, they only use their cast for about seven years. They'll be used for a number, and, and this is a case, this case in point, this cast was probably used to make a variety of different styles of wine, but the final wine that will have been in this cask will have been one of the sticky sweet Oloroso mm. PX, uh, resulting in the whiskey that mm -hmm. you have in your hands there. Bill, you give me the tasting notes. Yeah, okay. uh, yeah, so what do you think? At full strength, the first thing I picked up, it was almost like baking rye mm. or maybe even sourdough bread. Yeah, nice. With that classic slight rancio note you get from sherry cask. Yeah, lovely. When I say rancio, I don't mean rancid, I mean like quality aged balsamic vinegar with just a little tang to it. That slowly evolved, Andy, while you were talking mm -hmm. into making me think of subtle toffee notes and a little bit of spice. Now, I've added water to mine now, mm. and I'm getting some... Which, going back to your point about old whiskies, yeah. and this yeah. is fairly old whiskey, yeah. yeah. but we'd have often said that about sherry-influenced whiskies, wouldn't we? Be careful with the water, exactly. be judicious in the use of water. And I just used a few drops to yeah. this, and I'm getting a lovely kind of almost floral top note. If any of you are familiar, ladies and gents, with a style of wine called dry muscat, that's what this is making me think of now. And I haven't actually tasted it yet, Andy, so I'm going to do that yeah, now. Yeah, go for it. I'll just show you while, while Bill tastes this and then hopefully we'll get some, some of his wisdom. I'm just showing, I thought I'd show you one of their wines. This is actually one of their cassette wines. Uh, it's not the wine that was in, in this cask. Uh, just to give you a little bit of an idea, super premium, um, fairly expensive, but certainly worth um, looking into. Um, we love their yeah. stuff. I, I assume you do too. Oh, it's, it's, it's fabulous. All these different, it's a much underrated wine. Yeah. So on the taste, again, lots of baked bread. Yeah, um, it's very bready dough. A little bit, a little dough, bit of it? dried apricots in there. Yeah. Aniseed flavoured toffee. Mm -hmm. I'm getting lots of that. And in the aftertaste, mm. there's a little bit of, of the influence. It makes me think of planed oak wood. So there's quite nice. a bit of nuttiness in there. Yeah. And again, if you're used to drinking 
particularly a Montiado sherry, you get that nice hazelnut or walnut type thing. So I'm getting a bit of that, but it's very, very complex, Andy, and this is the first time I've tasted it. So I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm going to take a sip and think a bit. Maybe you can name some of the notes that you've actually written down. Uh, for the whiskey? Yeah. I, I, I didn't. I actually, this is the first time I'm tasting it too. Um, but Bill, um, I think a, gr a great description. I suppose what I'm interested in, and, and we can, you know, maybe we can think this through together, of those flavours, what can we attribute to the sherry? And what can we attribute to the wood? Now, this is an American oak cask. Yep. Um, manufactured I guess in the you know the, as you would know so yep. how much is this how much of this flavor is about well good quality heat treated oak and how much of this flavor is about the egg sherry so, so if, if it's good quality wood i.e not an old solera cask mm. an old solera cask you'll get next to nothing from the wood and what you will get is simply coming from the residue of the sherry wine but with this I would say that some of the, 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 the nuttiness, yeah. the kind of aniseed-type notes yeah. are almost certainly coming from the wood itself. Yep. There's a slight creaminess in there because there American oak is much more yeah. creamy than French or Spanish oak. So that's oak. what the, the oak lactones yeah. spill? The, yeah. the, the lactones yeah. and the lignin degradation, so yeah. the vanilla, so the, vanilla the coconut yeah. type yeah. things yeah. in there. Um, but in terms of the influence of the sherry wine, I'm sure it's these nice toffee and dried apricot yeah. notes. Which are, are delicious. Do we like this? Good, excellent. As we would say through in Greenock, my hometown, this is okay. Is it okay? Is it? So, get well, a good partnership in this case. Well, you know, you probably made the spirit or were responsible. Oversaw 16 years ago, I would have been yeah, responsible for overseeing the production of the spirit. Um, certainly, Bill, you lent the society your wisdom in terms of our additional cast maturation program, and we've taken that forward. We're now using and working with these amazing cooperages and bodegas. Um, and that's the kind of result that we got. I think that was released, um, or we certainly bottled that about 12 months ago. So I don't know if there's any kicking around. Um, any questions for us on this whiskey or what we do or, well, or for Bill as well? Um, so as we, a bit of a question, but as we see kind of the advancements being made in seasoned cherry casks and modern day cherry casks, yeah. and the current move away from Solera caskets, yeah. Solera being a bit more dime a dozen in terms of quality, do you think that we're going to see a bit more of a standardization of the quality of the sherry finishing within whiskey moving away from the special instances yeah. that we get from Solera? Yeah. Oh. And do you think this is going to have a negative impact where it's either going to raise the bar or we're going to be able to sort of pick out which specific area yeah. or company yeah. is doing the but, you know, the harsh reality is if it wasn't for this way of doing casts, we, we wouldn't even get 10% of the Scotch whisky industry's overall needs. So, unfortunately, this consistency, if you want to be positive about it, or uniformity, if you want to, it is inevitable. But within that, you know, we are still picking and choosing little nuggets. And, you know, Miguel well, Martin looks out unusual ones from us so you'll still find serious producers having these little idiosyncrasies if you like but you're right that there's going to be more uniformity so, so, so bill but on that the uniformity point and the consistency point my view would be what we're going to see have as an industry is mm. consistency in terms of reliable results yep. we know when we fill that casket we'll do what we wanted it to do 
And that's a good thing because you couldn't have said that yeah. not so long ago. Right, it would have been finger in the air stuff, fill it yeah. and hope for the best. We now, uh, I mean, this is, this is a sort of an example. And with Jose and Miguel Martin and some of our like Vasima uh, and Tavasa, we can trace the cask right back to the forest. We have complete mm. traceability. We know the provenance of the cask. Yeah. We know everything that's happened. We can, and, and, mm. and we, can, we can tell the cooperage what we want in terms of yeah. seasoning, both seasoning of the oak, mm. both seasoning in mm. terms of the wine that was in the cask. We can specify the heat treatment. We can get the results we want. So I think the consistency, that's a very positive consistency. Yeah. There will still be the variety because we work with different manufacturers who all, as you think, I think you heard the word, used the word idiosyncrasies. Yeah. Um, they will all be doing things different. Jose Miguel Martin, despite this being an American oak cask, his specialism is working with European oak, which is notoriously difficult to work yeah. with. Um, other suppliers we work with specialise in, in, American, uh, in using American oak. They use their own different and distinct wines, and they have their own subtle differences to the production process. So I think the variety is there by us working with, okay, it's a handful of, handful of, of cooperages and bodegas. The variety is there... Um, sorry, do I need to shut up? Five minute warning on the food. No, no, we'll keep going. <laughs> but, go thank on. you. Uh, but um, the consistency is the positive thing because we now have consistently reliable results. Yeah. Thank you. Um, right, sorry if we lost some of you there. Yeah. Yes. So, the original King's Ruby was one of my all time favourite whiskies. Uh-huh. And then you changed it and stopped making the original. Why did you do that? Okay, so um, th th there's a number of layers within that question there that. The original Kinta Ruban used a variety of port casks and eventually, again, to try and introduce the C word, which I think is a very bad word. I don't particularly like consistency. I like these things. But the markets were demanding a bit more consistency, so I rationalised my supply of port casks. And, you know, the, my main supplier, uh, which is Diaz Cooperage, um, we're actually trying to move me over to casks with better quality wines, older wines, tawny wines. That's not what I wanted. Yeah. I wanted young, vibrant, ruby, fruity wines. So I, I was almost kind of persuaded by the markets to integrate a d degree of consistency. The change to 14-year-old was um, partly down to market demand but primarily down to us wanting to have a kind of laddering in the ages of our products and you know the, the Glenmorangie Nectar Door is about to become 16 year old yeah. so we'll have 10 in original, 12 in La Santa, 14 in Quinta Ruban um, I prefer Quinta Ruban as a 12 year old but at the end of the day if I only made products according to what I like, then we probably wouldn't sell very much of it. But I would dearly love to think that you can still find most of the elements that made you fall in love with Kinta Ruban in the first place. I like all of them. It's just that that was mine. Right. That one and then the Uber Right. Okay. Bill, next to us, one of my favourite ever whiskies. Right. I think it's utterly wonderful. Good. Well, I, I, I hope that continues. We always used it um, in uh, century training at yeah. Spurry events. Are there any other comments or questions um, that for, for, for me, for Bill? No? Okay, so I think you're going to get some nice food served, but fear not. 
you don't get rid of me that easily. I'm going to come back after the food and talk to you a little bit more about Ardbeg. Uh, and I'll join him and I'm going to be interrogating him about things like Pete and Tewar. We can all take a pause there, but there was much more from Dr Bull in the second half of the evening's tasting, which you can hear about in the next episode of Whiskey Talk, so stay tuned for that. Distillery visits and exclusive presentations from some of the biggest names in the whiskey world are just one of the perks of being a member of the SMWS. If you haven't signed up yet, what are you waiting for? That's it for this episode of Whiskey Talk. Until the next time, cheers.